A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. This week's story is from Robin Morantz Hennig and Samantha Hennig. The story was recorded in February 2013 at DROM in New York City. The theme of the event was Love and Science. My daughter Samantha and I have always been close. When Sam was in the fifth grade, we started a mother-daughter book club that lasted all the way through the girls' high school graduation. And when the girls were about 12 or 13, we actually read a book called That Night by Alice McDermott about a pregnant teenager. And we used that opportunity to talk about sexuality. I remember during that book club discussion, Sam said that she imagined that the first, the, the scariest thing about having sex for the first time would be that she would have to tell her mother about it. And, and I did actually tell my mother the first time that I tried to have sex, and not to make it a vagina evening, but I also told her that we didn't succeed because we could not locate my vagina. So in her early 20s, Sam had a couple of live-in boyfriends, and when she was living with somebody, she and I talked a lot about not quite to that specific um, detail, but we talked a lot about her relationships and about love and sex and how things were going. And then when she was 25 and had broken up with the second boyfriend, she started to live the life of a single woman in New York City, and all that chatter kind of stopped. I think it was partly because Sam recognized that I was pretty eager for her to pair up again. And then just in case she didn't really understand that, I put my foot in it. She had been single for about a year, and we were at a restaurant, Sam and her father and I, and I knew that she had gone on a date with somebody that she had met at a wedding. Uh, So I asked her how the date had gone. And she said, it was a nice date, he was a nice guy, but she didn't think it was gonna go anywhere because he didn't make her feel glowy. And I said, well, you know, Sam, you're almost 27 years old. Maybe you shouldn't be expecting glowy anymore. And I instantly thought, oh shit, what did I just say? <laughs> I mean, she's only 27 years old. She shouldn't be giving up. But I, I knew that someday she wanted children and someday I wanted grandchildren and I could just picture that she would have this whole succession of perfectly nice guys who she would be rejecting in turn until one day she woke up alone and looking for a sperm donor. Just to fact check for a moment. She didn't say, you're almost 27, even though, in fact, I was almost 27. I was 26 at the time. What she said was, you're 27 years old. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm still 26. But just to underscore how eager she was for me to get going. Okay, so I exaggerated a little, perhaps. But here's what was really stupid about this. It wasn't just a stupid mother saying something incredibly obnoxious to her almost 27-year-old daughter. 
It was a stupid mother saying something incredibly obnoxious to her almost 27-year-old daughter with whom she had just signed a book contract to co-write a book about being in your 20s. Yeah, so I was a little bit nervous that night um, because I knew that this book that we were about to write together was going to deal with these issues of dating and marriage and babies. Um, The book is called uh, 20-something, Why Do Young Adults Seem Stuck? And it came out of um, an article that my mom had written for the New York Times Magazine on 20-somethings that had been very popular. And so some publishers approached her and said, do you want to turn this into a book? And my mother had already written eight books at that point and was sort of cynical about the whole thing, but she thought it might be fun if we wrote it together. So she said, sure, I'll do it if I can do it with my daughter. And I said, okay. And so the, the, the book sort of deals with, you know, what's interesting about the 20s as this time in your life when you're having to close doors for the first time after a whole lifetime of being told to keep your options open, including, you know, choosing one mate at and not being able to just sleep around with everybody. Um, and it also deals with you know, decision-making and uh, changing, changes in fertility and brain maturation and that sort of thing. So since my mom had written eight books before, and since I had a full-time job at the time, the deal was that she would do the bulk of the reporting and writing, and then I would sort of, she would send me drafts, and I would make little inserts of you know, personal stories from the mouth of an expert 20-something. Um, And then I would also edit what she wrote to keep her from sounding too square and old. (laughs) And to head off any real disasters, I made a couple ground rules at the beginning. And the main one was, just because I write something, that does not mean that it's an invitation for us to have a big talk about it. Because I knew that I was going to have to be saying personal stuff. And I, I needed to be able to say, you know, I was upset about something without expecting my mom to pick up the phone and say, well, why were you upset? Or I needed to be able to talk about, you know, dating and breakups without my mom thinking that that meant that we were going to break out some Ben and Jerry's and just, like, stay up all night gabbing. Um, so I said, you know, you can critique the way that I present this information as a co-author and as an editor, but you can't actually engage with the content as a mother. <laughs> and for the most part, she, she honored that rule. Okay, well, let me show you how much I had to resist. When she would say something like, I've already let go of my previous notions of how long I should be dating someone before we get married. Now, what Jewish mother is going to let that go by without at least asking a couple of follow-up questions? Or, or this one. This, is, this was really tough. At 27, I have an ever-increasing string of non-marital romantic relationships in my wake. I'll leave the exact number vague as one does when one's mother is present. And my mother is still present, so I'm still going to leave it vague. Um, So there was a chapter, a whole chapter on love and marriage. And it would be nice if in the course of writing this chapter we came across some study that sort of helped us heal this tension between us. But in fact, the studies were not so helpful. Um, There was a study that looked at the ideal age for getting married in terms of uh, long-term happiness in your marriage. And it found that the, the best time was between the ages of 22 and 25. Um, And there was another study at the Kinsey Institute that looked at how um, 
you know, the, the effect of having, of the number of partners that you have on your satisfaction with your current partner. And it found that the more partners you had had before, the less satisfied you were with your current partner. And then another study looked at uh, the ideal number of partners in terms of your, your happiness. And it, it found that the best number for your happiness uh, was to only have had sex with one person in the previous year. So n- none of this, you know, we got to the end of chapter five and it was like, all right, well, my mom's not feeling much better about things and neither am I actually. <laughs> but luckily there was chapter six about childbearing, which I actually thought was going to make us feel even worse because I really want grandchildren. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that what we were going to find was that as you go through your 20s, your fertility significantly declines, which we did in fact find. Um, But we also found one study that we kind of held on to as a little bit of solace. It was a study by John Murawski at the University of Texas who looked at a whole series of studies to try to figure out what was the best age to have a baby for the first, have your first baby. And he found that it depended on how how you define best. If by best you mean most likely to get pregnant and stay pregnant, it was pretty young. It was the late teens or the early 20s. And if by best you mean what's best for the health of the infant, that's pretty young too, that's 26. However, if by best you mean what's best for the mother's long-term health, that's actually much older. The best time to have your first baby then is at 31. And if you mean what's best for, in terms of the mother's long-term longevity, that's 34. So we put that into our chapter, and we wanted to make our readers feel better, and I felt like I, too, was kind of relaxing about Sam being single. I must have missed that brief relaxation period, (laughs) because what I remember is that then a couple months after we finished the book, but before it had come out, there was a front-page article in the New York Times about egg freezing. And specifically, it was about this trend of middle-aged parents helping their single daughters finance their egg freezing, because it can cost as much as $15,000 for a single batch. And so I was about to tweet something uh, like, oh my God, I can so picture my mother doing this. Uh, And I had the tweet all ready to go. And then I got an email from my mother. (laughs) And it actually wasn't offering me $15,000 to freeze my eggs, but it was suggesting that we maybe write a blog post about this. We had had talked about egg freezing a little bit in our book, uh, sort of in passing, but I guess I violated our agreement a little bit. I used that opportunity to say to Sam, did you ever think about freezing your eggs? Uh, And she basically said, are you crazy? I'm much too young to think about something like that. And even though I thought that she was exactly the right age to be thinking about something like that, I had learned my lesson from the glowy thing, and so I didn't say anything. So we decided that we would engage this topic yet again um, in a blog post for the Motherload blog on the New York Times. And so we went back and forth uh, one day with edits on the post. And my mom, in the draft that she wrote, she was basically saying that she was sad that the average age that uh, American women freeze their eggs is 37.4, that that's actually way too old, that you know, in order to have healthy eggs, you should be doing it a decade earlier. And so the conclusion that she drew from that is that Obviously, parents need to be talking to their kids when they're in their 20s about freezing their eggs because that's when they should be doing it, not when they're (laughs) 37.4 years old. And I was like, okay, I get that women should be freezing their eggs when they're younger and when their eggs are at a better age. 
But to make the leap to the idea that that is then the responsibility of the parents to have that discussion, to bring that up, I just didn't get where she was going with that. And, and there was also, you know, some people argue that, well, if, if women freeze their eggs when they're in their early 20s, then they can have peace of mind about their fertility. But women in their early 20s already have peace of mind about their fertility. That's just what it is to be in your early 20s. You're not thinking about your fertility. Um, and so I, I ended up writing in the blog post that, you know, I, for me, the issue is that when it's so expensive and when you're dealing with these serious hormones and their potential health risks, I just didn't want to do it at this age because to, it felt like admitting defeat. It felt like saying, I'm going to go to these crazy lengths because this is the only way that I'm going to be able to get pregnant. And I've given up on, on the idea of actually, you know, getting married and having um, a man impregnate me. <laughs> so we, we basically wrote that in the blog post. We had my position and we had Sam's position and we went back and forth a little bit. And I must say that um, among the 98 commenters, most of them agreed with Sam and said I was just an intrusive mother who should get a life. <laughs> but, but I realized that what we were doing was something that we had been doing kind of Sam's whole life. Uh, we were taking an opportunity to, to grapple with some really tricky mother-daughter conversations, but having them, instead of across the kitchen table where they might have been kind of difficult to have, having them out loud in public. You know, when Sam was 12 and we wanted to talk about teenage sexuality, we had that conversation in front of the members of our book club. And now when she's 28 and we want to talk about fertility, we have that conversation in front of the millions of readers of the New York Times. Um, we have been our whole lives, I think, disguising book talk as some really important, really difficult mother-daughter conversations. Thank you. That was Robin Morant Hennig and Samantha Hennig. Robin is a freelance science writer and contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine. She's the author of nine books and is also the recipient of a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship, two Science and Society Awards from the National Association of Science Writers, and a Career Achievement Award from the American Society of Journalists and Authors. Samantha is the online editor at the New York Times Magazine. She previously worked at The New Yorker as the digital news editor and at Newsweek, both in print and online. And she also helped launch Double X, a women's web magazine that was part of the Slate Group. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, and Ari Daniel Shapiro. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Drom for hosting the show, and to my mom for not publishing those journals. Thanks for listening. <laughs>